out of the besieged Ukrainian port city of Mariupol. Reportedly, Russians allowed seven buses to come to the place uh, of where evacuation should begin, but uh, should have begun. But uh, again, um, it's only seven buses out of nine. Plus, what are the dangers posed by the materials Russian troops took from the Chernobyl nuclear plant? If those materials get in the hands of people who do not know what they are, they can give you essentially a chemical burn. And later in the program, how the war has impacted one lawyer who's staying behind as her son and husband fight Russian troops. Today is Wednesday, April 20th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening. I'm Steve Miller. A proposed agreement between Russia and Ukraine to evacuate civilians from the besieged city of Mariupol fell through once more. We begin today with Anna Chernikova in Kiev, and I spoke to her earlier about the proposal to evacuate civilians. Yeah, this is true. This agreement uh, was uh, confirmed by both sides. What we know so far is that evacuation was supposed to begin uh, at 2 p.m. Ukraine time. We know that uh, Mariupol, the head of Mariupol uh, was encouraging people to evacuate, not to be afraid. Uh, he informed uh, people as much as he could in these conditions that evacuation is happening to the police and uh, to, to a safe place so people should not be afraid. Unfortunately, for the moment, we do not have any information about uh, either success or failure of this uh, evacuation. And around 2 o'clock, we had information that reportedly Russians allowed seven buses to come to the place uh, of where evacuation should begin, but uh, should have begun. But uh, again, um, it's only seven buses out of nine, he confirmed uh, previously. And this information only comes from the civilians, so we don't have official information either these buses were there or not. And I also want to ask you about the fighting that's taking place in and around Mariupol. Again, on Wednesday, there was another ultimatum levied by the Russian forces for Ukrainian military personnel to lay down their arms. They, of course, again refuse that directive. What do we know about those who are still fighting? Today in the morning, the head of Azov uh, Department um, of National Guards uh, made a speech, uh, recorded a speech where he said that, that it could be his last speech, but uh, Ukrainians should know that they are fighting and they will fight until the very last uh, drop of their blood. And one last question, Anna. Moscow says that it has presented Ukraine with a draft document. This comes from Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov that outlines Moscow's demands as part of the ongoing peace talks. What do we know about Ukraine's response to the document? Uh, yeah, the document was uh, the answer from Ukraine uh, from Russian side to Ukrainian proposal after the latest meeting in Istanbul. Uh, Ukraine uh, completed a certain uh, proposal list for, the, for a possible peaceful agreement. Um, we know that, uh, so according to the advisor to the head of the president's office, Mr. Podolak, uh, uh, he said that Ukrainian side uh, is studying the proposal from Russian side at the moment, that uh, they really uh, received it. At the same time, he also mentioned that the siege of the 
Mariupol by Russia has further complicated negotiations between Kiev and Moscow. And of course, um, it is very difficult to say uh, when direct contact between the parties can be resumed again. Anna Chernikova reporting from Kiev. Thank you. The World Food Program says it's scaling up delivery of food aid into previously inaccessible areas of Ukraine's conflict. But too many areas still remain out of reach. Lisa Schlein has that story. Seven weeks into the Ukrainian conflict, the United Nations has recorded nearly 5,000 civilian casualties, including more than 2,000 killed figures the UN considers to be conservative. At the same time, the World Food Program estimates nearly half of the country's population of 44 million is worried about finding enough to eat. Among them, it says, are some 6 million people in desperate need of food and cash assistance. Speaking from Lviv, WFP emergency coordinator in Ukraine, Jakob Kern, says his agency has mobilized more than 60,000 metric tons of food, enough for 2 million people for two months. Some aid, he says, is being distributed to vulnerable people in areas previously beyond reach. Places such as Bucha, Irpin, Hostomel, and Borodyanka, where civilians have been subjected to weeks of horrific attacks by invading Russian troops. WFP has reached 1.7 million people in Ukraine through in-kind food assistance to families in encircled and conflict-affected areas. Most people we reached. 1.4 million out of the total 1.7 million are families trapped in encircled and partially encircled areas of the country. But many of the most vulnerable remain out of our reach, behind conflict lines. The most visible example of this is the city of Mariupol, which has been under relentless bombardment from Russia since the war started February 24th. Karen says tens of thousands of civilians trapped in underground bunkers are in dire need of food, water, and other essential supplies. However, he says relief convoys cannot enter the city without permission from all sides. And we need at least 48 hours to safely get food and other items delivered and safely get out again. The city of Mariupol, 100,000 people would probably need about two or three trucks a day for just food alone, let alone all the other items. So it's not the question of going with 10 trucks once a month. That's not going to, to cut it. He says the humanitarian operation cannot go ahead without the agreement of all parties to the conflict. The WFP official is appealing to all parties to allow unimpeded continuous access to families trapped in Mariupol and other encircled areas of Ukraine. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Russian soldiers who took over the radioactive Chernobyl nuclear site may have put their own lives at risk when digging trenches and bunking there. In addition, VOA has obtained photographs indicating that Russian soldiers took hazardous materials from the site. Earlier today, I spoke with VOA's Igor Sikoneka in New York, who covered the story. I'm speaking in the words of one of the sources from the Chernobyl plant that I talked to. They took, quote, everything and anything they could, end quote. The most disconcerting thing here, obviously, was the theft of hazardous materials. Among uh, other places, uh, the Russians looted nuclear plants lab. They stole some radioactive materials that could be potentially very, very harmful if mishandled. For example, from one of such labs, they took over 800 radioactive instruments uh, that are used to calibrate the 
radiation dosimeters. So to explain to your audience what those are, basically when we go into what's called the exclusion zone, is the area with high levels of radiation around the Chernobyl plant, we always carry dosimeters. Those are the devices which show the levels of radiation around us, okay? So if a dosimeter, a dosimeter breaks down and shows lower than the real levels of radiation, it can be very harmful to us. So there are devices that check the functionality of those dosimeters, and they're called calibration tools or calibration instruments. Essentially, they're small metallic boxes, usually in the shape of a keychain, that have a highly radioactive material, usually cesium-137, packed into them. It's packed inside of those metallic uh, boxes. If dissembled, damaged, somehow mishandled again, they can be very harmful to a human being. Uh, the Russian soldiers also uh, appeared to have stolen most of computer servers, system blocks, uh, documentation. In the video we obtained from the nuclear plant, we saw rows and rows of empty drawers. But in some cases, Steve, uh, Lutin took this almost absurd format when according to the witness testimonies, they took uh, coffee makers, toasters, a 40-year-old fridge apparently, old mattresses, and, and even utensils. Igor, I want to go back to something that you mentioned, and that was the more hazardous type of materials that were taken. Can you explain a little bit more about the dangers that that may pose? As far as scientists explained to me, if those materials get in the hands of people who do not know what they are, kids or a layman, you know, if you touch those, some parts of those devices with bare skin, they can give you essentially a chemical burn of pretty high degree. So it's not desirable to carry those. And you can, obviously they exude, they emit a radiation. So it's not really good for your for any parts of your body. And one last question. You you mentioned that the the facility was, was more or less ransacked with people taking mattresses, a 40-year-old fridge. What exactly yeah. was the condition of the Chernobyl plant after the Russian forces left? That two days before the troops withdrew, uh, several soldiers with machine guns walked into the main office building of the Chernobyl power plant and offered uh, the most senior member of management uh, of the plant to sign a document, which essentially said that in those 36, I think 37 days that the Russians were at the plant, everything was perfect, fine and dandy, and they provided security and protection to the staff of the plant. Here, of course, we should ask a question, protection from whom? You know, the plant was perfectly functioning before. And... Um, uh, the, the document said that the management of the facility uh, had no objections or qualms, uh, basically, about the occupation. Uh, and so they, the, the source told us after the, the manager basically was forced to sign the document, uh, looting began. So they started taking everything they, they, they could. One more thing that I, I want to tell your audience, one of the most striking and bizarre things, to be honest with you, that I uncovered conducting this investigation and working on the story was the level of cluelessness and the scale of, of ignorance of the people that occupied the Chernobyl plant. According to uh, pretty much all people I spoke to, and again, it was confirmed by the reporting of some other uh, Western outlets, 
the Russian soldiers had no idea what they were what they were doing there, and in some cases even where they were. Uh, they started digging trenches in the most contaminated areas of the exclusion zone, which, for instance, like the Red Forest, and uh, apparently lived in those trenches for several days, sleeping, drinking, and eating right there. All of that was done in extremely dry and windy weather, which is the most uh, dangerous thing to do. One can only speculate why that was done. As again, um, people I spoke to uh, concluded, they said that there are only two two conclusions we can reach here. It's either they had absolutely no idea what Chernobyl is and how dangerous the area was where they arrived, or their commanders knew about it but really didn't care about the safety of their own soldiers. Igor Siganeka, thank you very much for your reporting up in New York. You're welcome, Steve. Listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. The Syrians for Truth and Justice organization said that the Wagner Group and a Syrian partner security company have transported Syrian volunteers in Benghazi, Libya, to Damascus, Syria, and eventually to Russia for training before deploying to Ukraine. Reporter Angie Omar discussed why would Russia need war hardened Syrian mercenaries in Ukraine with Wolfgang Putsai? Austria's former defense attaché to Libya, and a security and policy analyst with a special focus on the Middle East and North Africa region. He's also the chairman of the advisory board of the National Council on U.S.-Libya Relations. Russia has already deployed most of its best troops to Ukraine, the so-called Category A units. They are equipped with the most modern and best military hardware Russia has available. They consist mainly of professional soldiers and longer-serving conscripts. After underestimating the Ukrainian resistance and overestimating the support of the Russians living in Ukraine to the Russian army, they suffered quite a high number of casualties. Several of these units are not combat ready anymore, or at least need to be reorganized. But the Russians need many more troops for a renewed large offensive to turn the tide in the war in Ukraine. They need actually high numbers of very highly trained infantry for fighting in urban areas in a high intensity conflict. Those troops must be trained in so-called combined arms warfare in cooperation with Russian air and artillery support. Based on their experience in fighting together with the Syrian military against ISIS, the Russians believe that some of the Syrians could actually fulfill this role. So they want to have them in Ukraine to supplement their own Category B units, which were already mobilized in mid-March. Russia is offering each qualified Syrian fighter up to $2,000 a month to join its troops in Ukraine. Dozens of Syrians, many of the elite Syrian units, are desperate for job opportunities, even if it puts their lives at risk. How risky is joining Russian troops, even if they previously worked with the Russian army in Syria? Actually, it is very risky. The Russians will send them right into the sand of the toughest fighting, so very high casualties can be expected. Russian recruitment in Syria focuses on the elite units of the Assad regime, like for example, the infamous or famous, whatever you want, 4th Armors Division. Those soldiers are very well experienced in this combined arms warfare in cooperation with the Russians, including with Wagner mercenaries and special forces. They have fought successfully in large cities like Homs or Aleppo. They use similar equipment 
like the Russian category B units. So they required, or maybe they required already, just a few weeks of force integration training in Russia before they could be sent as structured military units into combat. And sending them as individuals wouldn't make a lot of sense from a military point of view. There is already some unconfirmed information that several Syrian battalion tactical groups are now part of the major offensives the Russians have started yesterday in the Donbas. We will see in the next days. In the first 10 days of Russia's invasion, it deployed an estimated thousand mercenaries from the Russian paramilitary organization. Could Moscow's recruitment of foreign fighters and Syrian mercenaries reflect this pressure? Yes, absolutely. Russia needed already to scale back its military objectives in the war. Initially, they intended to seize also the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, to establish a Russian-friendly government, but they failed spectacularly to do so. In the south, the Russians were able to take the northern neighborhood of the Crimean Peninsula and north of the northern coast of the so-called Sea of Azov. They have established a land connection between the Crimean and the breakaway territories in eastern Ukraine, where there is a Russian population majority, the so-called Donbas. But the whole of the Donbas is still not entirely in Russian hands. To take the whole of the Donbas is a must for Putin. He wants this to protect, as he believes, the Russians in Ukraine. And he needs the Donbas because of its economic significance. One must not forget that the Donbas was the industrial heartland of the former Soviet Union, and it is still closely connected with the Russian economy. The Russians, as mentioned, suffered already very high casualties, allegedly up to 20,000 killed and more than 60,000 wounded. One must be aware that's more than the Russians suffered or the Soviets suffered in the 10 years war in Afghanistan in the 1980s. So these figures, and they will even raise during the new offensive, are undermining the moral of the Russian troops, and they could eventually erode the support of the Russian population for the war. Wolfgang Putzai is the chairman of the advisory board of the National Council on U.S.-Libya Relations, and he was speaking from Vienna to reporter Angie Omar. The International Monetary Fund on Tuesday slashed its forecast for global economic growth to just 3.6% this year, saying Russia's war in Ukraine threatens a fragile recovery from disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. White House Bureau Chief Patsy Wiedekuswara is up next. Russia's war in Ukraine and Western sanctions against Moscow have disrupted global commerce, pushed up oil prices, threatened food supplies, and increased uncertainty as the world struggles to recover from the pandemic, causing the International Monetary Fund to downgrade its global economic outlook. IMF Chief Economist Pierre-Olivier Gorinchat. Even before the war, inflation in many countries had been rising due to supply-demand imbalances and policy support during the pandemic prompting a tightening of monetary policy. The IMF slashed its global growth forecast from 4.4% to 3.6%, the World Bank from 4.1% to 3.2%. Increased energy and commodity prices have led to less output and more inflation. The White House is blaming Moscow. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. We've said this from the beginning, that the invasion of Ukraine by President Putin and Russia is going to have a continued impact on the global economy, whether it is on uh, the oil markets or other areas. Add to that a slowing of the Chinese economy due to frequent lockdowns caused by the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. 
Diana Fort-Goth-Roth, adjunct professor of economics at George Washington University via Skype. First of all, China has imposed a quarantine of one week on goods that come into China. And that means that manufacturers that use chips from other places, such as South Korea, are not getting the inputs they need to make the goods in China. Second, there's congestion at the ports because of the lockdown, such as Hong Kong and Shanghai. A key goal for central bankers attending the spring meetings of the IMF and World Bank in Washington is to curb inflation without sending the world into recession by gradually increasing interest rates, preferably in a coordinated way. Desmond Lachman, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former deputy director at IMF's Policy Development and Review Department via Skype. That would prevent inflation from spilling over from one place to the other. But it's a delicate task because we do have equity markets that are very buoyant. We've got housing markets that are very buoyant. So this is not going to be easy to raise interest rates in a way that will bring down inflation without producing a recession. They probably let the inflation get too far ahead of them for them to engineer a soft landing at this stage. Amid Western efforts to isolate Russian President Vladimir Putin, coordination may prove challenging. The U.S. is skipping some of the group of 20 G20 finance ministers' meetings this week to protest Moscow's participation in the group over its actions in Ukraine. Patsy Widakuswara, VOA News, Washington. And finally, Russia's war in Ukraine has affected families throughout the country. On Wednesday, the United Nations Refugee Agency said that over 5 million people have fled Ukraine in the worst refugee crisis to hit Europe since World War II. Reuters' Olivia Chan rounds us out with this story of one woman who's staying behind to take care of the family home, even as her husband and son fight to defend their nation. Shana Lushchinska is a lawyer in the local city council in Zaporizhia, southeastern Ukraine. But now she spends most of her time looking after the family farm. Her husband and son are away in the army, defending the country. Well, I stayed. I have no choice. I need to look after the house. I need to wait for my husband to come back. I need everybody to come back. We had a home, but it was more fun to work when we were all together. I'm not complaining. I can cope on my own. Since the war broke out, Lushchenska collects food and medicine for the elderly in the area, cares for her 75-year-old mother in addition to her work in the city council and growing duties on the farm. The farm is equipped with a bomb shelter. Lushchenska says her husband calls her in the middle of the night and asks her to hide. Speaking on the phone from an undisclosed location, her husband says his army unit is well supplied and being buoyed by support from locals. I think the war has united the country so much, they've all come together against this disaster, against grief, Lyshinska's husband tells her. Russia calls its actions a special military operation to demilitarize Ukraine and eradicate what it calls dangerous nationalists backed by an expansionist NATO military alliance. 
The Western Kiev accused President Vladimir Putin of unprovoked aggression. Olivia Chan from Reuters News. And that's going to do it for us today. Be sure to stay up to date with our continuing coverage, not only on Ukraine, but news and events from around the world 24 hours a day. You can do so at voanews.com as well as on our social media platforms. Just follow VOA News. On behalf of our entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Steve Miller. Be well, be safe, and good night.